It is another delightful opportunity this Lord's Day morning, and perhaps the words of Psalm 26, verse 8 come before us. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thine house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. As you and I appreciate those commandments and those statements found in the Bible, it gets us excited to think about coming together with those of like precious faith, those who are able to blend their voices so beautifully together as we express to God the heartfelt thanks that we do have for Him and for all that He's done for us. And as a part of all of that, we come to a time in which we give some thought to a section of God's Word. Today, as you may have noted in the reading of Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, the handling of trespasses was a topic and a subject addressed by our Savior Himself. As you and I think about that for the next few moments, isn't it fair to say that we still live in a world in which we deal with trespasses? In fact, as the Lord addressed those comments then, they are still as needful and as vital now because all of us need to know how to handle trespasses. These introductory comments will begin our consideration of the lesson this morning. I might suggest to you that one of the things that readily comes before us is to identify what is a trespass. What did Jesus mean when He commented relative to handling them in this passage? When they are of that which occurs, how do I handle it and how do you handle it? We here at the Pippin Church, as well as any other faithful congregation, would desire to handle any matter, any trespass, just in the way the Lord would have commanded. For we wish always to rest thoroughly upon His authority. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. Verse 17 of Colossians chapter 3. With this concept of trespasses and the issues here that the Lord addressed in some detail, I would submit to you today, why don't you and I take a journey through these verses, somewhat slowly and somewhat systematically, all the while striving to appreciate the way to handle them. Let's begin the lesson, though, with a bit of identification. The identification that I have in mind is this one. What constitutes a trespass? You'll notice at the very top, you and I know so well that the Word of God teaches that the human family, individuals, can very easily choose to do that which is not in favor of God. They can choose to sin. Romans 3.23 still says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.8 comments it in language like this one, If any man say he has no sin, he deceives himself and the truth is not in him. You and I know that an individual, including we ourselves, can make choices in which we can engage in that which is sinful. You'll notice at the top all kinds of examples the Bible gives us of those in the ancient past who made those very choices. There are those who choose to act by virtue of malice. They can act with a note of hatred within them in such a way they purposely strive to bring harm or hurt to another. In Acts 23, you remember they slapped hard the face of Paul because he had the nerve to stand for the truth. Now should the high priest have had his officers to do that? Of course not. There was no cause nor jurisdiction for any such thing, but yet they harmed or hurt Paul in that character. Other examples might be those of 2 Timothy 4 verse 14. You may remember Paul there expressly called the name of those who did him much hurt. 
they sought to really bring injury to Paul by virtue of his stance for what they didn't believe in. But what they did was sinful. You and I are not given the opportunity, apart from the very nature of God's measure of strong punishment by virtue of a legal matter, we can't take another person's life. And we're not supposed to lie to them and we're not supposed to harm them in any particular or directed way. But yet there are those who choose to do that. You'll notice there also is a very different circumstance. It's entirely possible that someone might choose to do something that by itself isn't sinful, but it's not what I would have done. It's a preference on their part different from a decision that I might have made. You'll notice that's a very different circumstance. If it's not by itself sinful, it's just something I personally don't prefer, that is not a trespass. That's a matter of opinion. It is a matter of individual choice and volition. As you can see, there are times in the Bible where that is mentioned as well. There were those in both Romans and in 1 Corinthians of whom they were choosing to eat meat and others were choosing not to. Paul said both can be right before God because that matter of commendation, a man is not condemned if he eat, but if he's not condemned if he doesn't. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 8. That matter of eating meat, you see, was not something that God had in, in condemned in His Word. That was a choice that some individuals were making. As you can see about the middle of that slide and forward, we have to make a careful distinction then between these as we identify a trespass. A trespass is a violation, a transgression of that which is God's will. Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. 1 John 3 verse 4. When you and I then appreciate that definition... It leads us to those conclusions at the bottom. If someone does something that is condemned in the Word of God, and that particular something that they have done does harm or injure or offend me, then that does constitute a trespass toward me. Clearly, given that's a violation of God's will, forgiveness is required in order for them to be right before God. But by the same token, if someone does something, even if it's to me but it is merely a matter of preference. It is a matter of their particular opinion or choice as opposed to mine. If God's Word doesn't condemn it, then that's not by definition a trespass. And that's not something that would require invariably forgiveness in order for them to be right before God. A matter of opinion versus a matter of God's Word. Those two are so strongly distinguished, and as that slide closes... We now are interested in what do you and I do if it's a trespass. Thankfully, Jesus gave us these verses before us this morning. It helps us understand so well the approach that not only will correctly approach that matter, but in almost all instances will lead to an appropriate resolution. You'll notice as we come to this one, I thought it would be wise to consider some general attitudes as we develop the thoughts in these verses that follow. Attitudes which can be very meaningful, very helpful, and attitudes which often are very strongly a part of helping to resolve the situation. First of all, might I ask you to notice, it's important to maintain composure. 
When someone does something to me that's a trespass, that is to say it is an actual harm or a particular matter of sinful nature against me, that can be a matter of great mental strain and stress. By the same token, even if someone does something and it's a matter of opinion, if I feel very strongly about it, that too can hurt. It might even lead me, if I'm not careful, to act or behave in a way that could ultimately be problematic. Maintain composure. I would ask you to look quickly at some verses, not the least of which would be the grand example of the Master himself. In Matthew 27, we remember the unfolding saga of that which would culminate in his crucifixion. He had already undergone some very shaky kinds of trials in the wee hours of the previous morning. As all of that had unfolded before him, you remember along with me that the scribes and the Pharisees were coming hard upon him, making claims and accusations against him. The text simply says that Jesus answered nothing. He knew this was not the proper time to respond in haste, to respond in overwhelming wrath or anger. This was not going to be that which accomplished the ultimate nature of what was the will of God. Impressive to remember that at least then he answered nothing. Sometimes silence is still the best immediate reply to what can be such a difficult situation. Not only that, might I ask you to notice that if we in haste, proceed to respond with wrath or with anger or even with a note of disconcern. We might ultimately plant seeds and they're going to bring forth and it'll be very hard to uproot the difficult plants that have now been able to come before us. Second consideration, in addition to attempting to maintain our composure, when we do answer, let it not be an answer prompted in grievousness. I chose that term especially because of its appearance in some of these verses. In Proverbs 15, verse number 1, we remember there the blessed is attached to a soft answer. For those who answer softly, the text informs us, are so different and distinct from those who with grievousness that grievousness, you see, can often be something that distances us from others. It creates separation and division and really doesn't help resolve the situation at all. Reminds us a bit of Nabal, doesn't it, in 1 Samuel 25. Here was one who had the opportunity to be a blessing to David and his men, and yet when they came and made a simple request, he adamantly refused. In fact, he even did so in an attitude of hatred. You may remember David was about to gather his forces and destroy that churlish man, the text says. But famously, Nabal's wife had enough good common sense that she smoothed the situation over. What a wise woman she was. You notice what a hasty answer did on that occasion. Maybe the third consideration is the encouragement that God's Word gives us to speak with wisdom. To allow the words that we speak to, of course, always be remindful of that which is the truth, and yet to proclaim in wisdom what? Especially the book of Proverbs sets before us. Proverbs 18 verse 13 tells us, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and a shame unto him. It is a temptation sometimes when a circumstance arrives to answer with such haste that we haven't gathered all the facts. 
We aren't even aware of all the things that relate to the matter before us. If we answer too quickly, we may again have to eat those words eventually when we realize greater information gives a different solution. Maybe as you consider texts like Proverbs 10, 19, the encouragement that is there given to each of us to speak again with great wisdom relative to situations before us. There are times when admittedly that can be challenging, but we know nothing is beyond the bounds and the appreciation of what God demands. To speak with wisdom brings us to this one. No matter what the situation, even if it is a trespass against my person, the Bible informs us do not act in hatred and do not act by despising the other person. Those words, hatred and to despise, admittedly, as you and I appreciate verses like Matthew 7 verse 12, there was a circumstance where Jesus directly taught us, didn't He? As we imagine doing unto others like what we wish they would have done to us. Not acting toward them the way they have acted toward us, but rather to act and behave toward them in a way as we would wish that they would have acted toward you and me. I would ask that you think about that verse in light also of Romans 14.3. Here were individuals, and remember this was a circumstance relative to the partaking of meat. And Paul said it's not condemned if they do, and they're not condemned if they don't. But he admonished them, just because their viewpoint is different, don't you despise them. He specifically said, those who do not eat, don't you despise those that do. Doesn't that help teach us that when someone's viewpoint is different than mine, there may be some value in it. It may not again be the way I would have done it. But the Bible doesn't give me cause to hate them or despise them just because they choose to pursue a matter differently than I would have done it. When we think about then this issue in trespass, one final thought on that slide is this one. Think about what happened to some of God's greatest servants when situations developed and arose and ultimately they behaved in a way like Moses did. In Numbers chapter 20, we remember as God so innocently instructed him to before the people to behave in such a way to bring water out of that rock. But yet Moses struck that rock twice took the glory to himself, behaved in that way that was so inappropriate. We remember that Moses wasn't allowed to enter the promised land because of it. Here Moses didn't handle that situation very well. How do you and I handle trespasses? We've learned some general guidelines. Let's be more specific about it. Jesus again gave us the information. So this rests from heaven and not with you or with me. The first step starts us here. Please read with me again from Matthew 18, verse 15, at least for the moment. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Suppose an individual then does behave toward you or toward me. And they do so in a way that brings harm, and they do so in a way that violates some section of the Word of God. What do you and I do about this? 
Do we immediately become defensive? And do we immediately behave in many ways that the world might encourage? Our quick replies to say, we're going to take our stand in verses like these. We shall handle it and we shall approach it the way that the Lord said for us to do it. First of all, step number one. He says with great definitiveness, If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. Notice that word alone is in the original Greek text. That is not a supplication of the translators. Jesus said the first thing you do is you go and in private, you bring the matter before this gentleman or this other person. You'll notice immediately many things that no doubt come to mind. I've tried to list them as follows. The first temptation, I suppose, that the devil so often encourages is you start talking about what he did. You tell your husband, you tell your wife, you tell your friends, you tell your co-workers, you tell everybody you want to at what a scoundrel he is and what he's done to you. Jesus said that is not what you do. You go and you address this gentleman, this other person. It could very well be that what he did, he doesn't even realize what he did. It may be that he acted in ignorance and isn't even aware that it indirectly brought some hurt or harm to you or to me. And upon his realization of it, he might have a very different approach. You'll notice that Jesus quickly commented, Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. I wonder how many times a resolution would be achieved almost immediately. There are those who have estimated that well over 90% of the time, if this first step were approached, the other steps would not even be necessary. But yet sometimes this is not what first is done, is it? We immediately assume what's bad. We immediately assume He did it on purpose. We immediately assume He intended to do it. And we, at that point on, hold a grudge. We have hard feelings. Jesus didn't mention any of that, did He? Go and tell Him His fault between you and Him alone. You'll notice that the next statement might well be, the Lord gave us no reason to suspect anything at this point. We shouldn't assume that He did it on purpose. We shouldn't presume that He acted with malice or forethought. We shouldn't presume that He acted with hatred. Now, the time may come we realize that He did. But at first, we need to at least allow the situation to develop to allow Him to defend what happened. Maybe it was done innocently. Maybe it was done without any preconceived notion at all. You'll notice that James brings us to this observation in James 2, verse number 8. He highlighted there the opportunity that other might have in order to defend what a situation was. That was the very context in which we read, Love thy neighbor as thyself. Think about turning the tables for just a moment. If you had done something but another person were offended, wouldn't you want them to come to you and allow you to defend what you did and to state that it wasn't on purpose and that it wasn't done with directness of intent? When you and I then behave in a way like that, we're just giving to them the opportunity that we would want them to give to us. Surely in light of that, you can also notice what Jesus used to close that verse. If he shall hear thee, Thou hast gained thy brother. 
if you approach this person in private and he says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't intend that to happen. That certainly was not anything that I had preconceived or in notion. I'd like to apologize. Would you please shake my hand and forgive me of that? You notice if he will hear you, Jesus says, you've gained your brother. That's the end of this situation. Never needed to be mentioned or thought of again. That's a wonderful thing to consider, isn't it? That resolution by virtue of an immediate communication between these two individuals. Beyond that, you'll notice what though is next. As you come near the close of that slide with me, there is a step two. Verse 16. It starts with an initial clause, but if he will not hear thee, suppose as a result of this trespass you have done that which was your duty by the nature of the Word of God. You've approached the individual, but he has no intent to listen. He does not wish to hear. In fact, he is absolutely convinced, at least in his own limited mind, that he hadn't any reason to apologize at all. Perhaps he doesn't appreciate the nature of God's Word. He doesn't realize God's Word condemns what he has done. If he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established." In light of this person's refusal, you have gone privately, but he has not heard. Jesus now says, the matter doesn't just stop. You don't just allow the fact of his rebellion to lead to an ending. There is a next step. And this next step is this one. Take with thee one or two more. As you and I think about then taking one or two more, there are several things involved clearly in that. I would ask you to consider them like this. This taking of one or two more, that directly means that the person offended needs to confide in somebody. You need to share with some trustworthy person what this other individual did. And surely that reminds us that that matter of confiding in another needs to be done with care. At this point, still, one does not besmirch their character. One does not assume they did it in any ways other than with respective character, of course. But obviously, as you choose the person to confide in, make sure that you choose it wisely. The person needs not to be motivated by partiality. They don't need to side with you just because you're their best friend. They need to hear your side of it and the other person's side of it, and they need to be ready to judge with fairness. After all, at this point, you might still need some instruction yourself about the circumstance. Choose wisely that person with whom you confide. You'll notice, though, at the top of the slide, we have some verses in 1 Corinthians that help us perhaps appreciate the nature of what's involved here. Paul had addressed the Corinthian congregation, and to them he had rebuked them because they weren't able to judge the causes amongst themselves. Paul even questioned them, is there not a man among you to judge the causes? You and I would hope that in a congregation of the Lord's people, that there would be maturity and wisdom evident. And if a trespass arose, we should feel confident to be able to select someone, perhaps an elder, and help that person so that they could be able to help us rightly resolve this situation. Take with thee one or two more. 
And then Jesus said that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Again, that witness or those two could hear both sides. They could readily appreciate God's Word relative to each situation and hopefully render advice and a judgment that could be so helpful. Again, as we, you and I approach that second step, notice what Jesus highlighted. That in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. It appears the obvious goal is to, again, make peace and harmony and to resolve this in the way that would glorify the nature of the God of heaven. This might be an appropriate time, though, in our study to ask, how often do we see other approaches besides this taken? People jump to conclusions. They assume what's the worst. They immediately expect and anticipate that what was done was done with purposeful malice and forethought. They gossip and tailbear and whisper about it. But yet we have found no statement in this text, at least, that encourages any of that. First, go to the person alone. If he will hear you, that matter is resolved. But if he doesn't, take one or two witnesses. At this point, we might now pose the following. Is there a step three? What if even in the mouth of two or three witnesses, there is a matter and there is a sharp contention between them? So much so, again, that something needs to be done. Step number three. Jesus goes even further, doesn't He? He says in verse number 17, And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. You'll notice the Lord did say, if he neglect to hear them. So clearly there is now a circumstance in which individual circumstances develop. They have talked in private. No resolution was reached. The person who was in the wrong still doesn't admit it and doesn't even or not willing to pursue it at all. Even with the mouth of two or three witnesses, the person still defends his case, though he has done wrong. He still appears not willing to repent to make any change relative to his behavior. Step three now brings us to what should be done next. If he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. I might ask you to notice that the King James uses the word neglect. In a way, the Greek seems to use a bit stronger in terms of the word that's used, if he shall refuse to hear them, seems to be closer to the original language. So here's an individual who's been approached in private and he's been approached about the matter with even witnesses and he's still rebellious. He's still sufficiently obstinate that he does not wish and feel like he needs to do anything more. He's wronged another and does not wish to make any amends or repentance at all. Step three, Jesus said, tell it to the church. Now, even more are to be brought into this. And one would appreciate that as it's brought before the church, surely that's done with care. It's done out of a sense of love for the soul of the one who has erred. It's done out of a sense of strong concern for his or her well-being. But Jesus did say, step number three, bring it before the church. It's at this point I would invite you to notice verse 20 of this same text. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. 
as the church hears this and as the information is shared with them and as they appreciate both sides of this, what was done and what reactions so far have not taken place, the church is able to render a verdict as well. The church, as it considers the teaching of God and what this person has done, the church now enters in and they too realize that there's been a trespass. There has been a violation of God's will. One person has injured, harmed another in a sinful way. Tell it to the church, Jesus said. As you notice some of these initial comments, it's certainly implied in this that the church is able to render strong consideration and verdict on the nature of God's Word relative to this subject. Look at some of these verses with me. In John 16, 13, as well as Matthew 16, 19, we remember teachings about the nature of what would be the doctrine of the church. As the church stands four square on the Word of God, if they appreciate then that here's an individual who has violated it and has harmed another in the process, the church should in fact enter into this. And in so doing, hopefully help that person realize that he or she is in the wrong. I would ask you to notice the willingness that you would hope would be in that person. Willingness to forgive. Even at this late stage, if this person were to finally realize that I have been wrong, if they were to then ask for forgiveness, that person in that church should openly thank God for that final reply and thank God for their ultimate fact that they've repented. Willingness to repent. Sometimes the human family, it seems, wishes to hold a deep-seated grudge. They wish to never really allow the matter to be resolved, even if the person were to beg for forgiveness. We notice here several passages like Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. Jesus directly taught there that I won't be forgiven unless I'm willing to forgive those who've trespassed against me. That's strong language, isn't it? On the second hand, you might remember Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. Jesus there spoke that parable in which an individual himself owed such a great debt, far greater a debt than he could ever pay. The king forgave him, absolutely wiped that debt out. Sadly enough, that individual though, the one who had been forgiven, there was another that owed him so much. The so much there was so little, wasn't it? And yet that man wouldn't forgive the one who owed him. Jesus closed that by encouraging us then to realize God has forgiven us of so very much. Our sin separated us from Him. Are you and I then unwilling to forgive someone who has trespassed and what in the grand scheme of things might be so littly against me? Jesus said... Take it to the church. You'll notice one final thought. It would again seem if that brother were to hear this situation, if he then were to hear the rebuke of the church and appreciate the love of that fellowship toward him, you've gained your brother. If he then makes apology and begs for forgiveness in light of his own repentance, you've gained your brother. Peace is able to exist again. You'll notice though that there's a yet another step. One by one in all these circumstances, what if this individual refuses to hear, refuses to make any admission, 
refuses to hear the teaching of God. Verse number 17 closes like this. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. One by one, this individual has come to this place. He's been unwilling to hear the reason of the first, even that of the witnesses, even that of the church. Even with book, chapter, and verse, he has been unwilling to change his opinion, to change his stance. Now Jesus says the final straw is this one. If he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. You'll notice as we come to the bottom of that slide, what did Jesus mean when he referenced a heathen man and a publican? Well, thankfully, we have a number of references to shed some light upon that thought. But you and I know well that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. They had no dealings with the heathens and those that were publicans. They, in fact, maintained as strong a separation as possible from them. Jesus said, if this person, even upon correction and attempted correction in all these ways, if he still adamantly refuses, he's not willing to hear God's Word. And even the strong note of a congregation of people he refuses. Let him be as a heathen man or publican. It's time for that act the New Testament calls withdrawal of fellowship. That's commanded, isn't it, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. And it is exemplified in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 2 and following. When we think about the attribute of that disfellowshipping, we notice the whole goal is for that person to come to his or her senses still because they are in a sinful condition. They have violated the law of God and to this point have been unwilling to respond. Jesus said the very last thing that a church can do is to withdraw fellowship from this man, separate from him or her. And in so doing, as we read in that Corinthian letter, the thought being that ultimately now deliver such an one to Satan, that in the day of judgment he might be saved. It's hopeful that he will recognize the error of his way, appreciate his distance from the church. Handling trespasses, as you and I notice, leads to, of course, a goal. The whole goal is to resolve these issues. God wants His church to dwell in peace. As much as life in you, live peaceably with all men, Romans 12, 18. Aren't we told in Romans 14, 19 about the nature of joy and peacefulness that should dwell and exist within the congregation of the Lord? As we've thought today about handling trespasses, it helps us see that Jesus realized that the human family, in terms of our nature over 2,000 years, not much has changed. There were people causing disturbances and trespasses in the first century, and there are still on occasion situations when that happens. As we close this lesson today, let's summarize it like this. We noted some initial definitions, what constitutes a trespass and what doesn't. We noted some general teachings helpful to us in terms of our attitude. But then we've noticed in detail that which Jesus declared. Approach him alone first. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't, take one or two witnesses. That in the mouth of them, every word may be established. If he neglects or refuses to hear them, bring it to the church. If he doesn't hear the church... Let him be as a publican and a heathen. 
what the Lord said then is still so very direct in handling trespasses, isn't it? In fact, there are even words of wisdom in it for handling even circumstances in which there are differences between individuals. As we come to the close of our lesson this morning, the handling of a trespass is a very serious issue, isn't it? If it's done incorrectly, it could lead to great other problems. May you and I be so thankful for God's instruction on a matter like this one. Today, if there's anyone in this audience and you're separated from the God that loves you because of sin in your life, realize it doesn't need to remain that way. You have been given an opportunity. The plan of salvation is readily set before us. If we could help you today in responding to it, those that are alien sinners in nature, you must believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His great name as the Son of God, and then be baptized. If you've attended to that, but you have strayed from faithfulness, maybe you've allowed the disposition of others, maybe you've allowed the actions of others to make you cold-hearted and to make you somewhat unloving, don't let that continue either. Don't let the mistakes of others cause you to forfeit your salvation. And if you need prayers of brethren on your behalf, we'd be delighted today to do it. If we could help you in any way today in a public way, this song of encouragement has been chosen. Brother Adam's going to lead us in it, and this is a convenient time. And if you'd like to come, why not do it now while together we stand and sing?